Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. In recent weeks, geopolitical tensions in the Indo-Pacific have been heating up. This dynamic has been most evident in China's reaction to the trip to Taiwan taken by U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Beijing repeatedly voiced its opposition in the days leading up to the visit, claiming that it represented a deliberate U.S. provocation of China on the Taiwan question, given Pelosi's high-ranking political position. The Biden administration, however, has placed the onus on Beijing for escalating the situation, pointing to the large-scale military exercises carried out after the visit as a significant overreaction to a normal congressional delegation. It appears then that the prospects for conflict between the United States and China have ratcheted up, raising serious questions for the future, including about Washington's ability to address a second major international crisis, in addition to Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. To help us unpack the likely trajectory of the current situation and its broader implications for our transatlantic community, we're really happy to welcome Jude Blanchett and Zach Cooper to the podcast. Welcome to both of you. Great to be here. Yes, indeed. Quick way of background, Uh, Jude holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Previously, he was Engagement Director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economics and Business in Beijing, where he researched China's political environment with a focus on the workings of the Communist Party of China and its impact on foreign companies and investors. And Zach is a Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies U.S. strategy in Asia including Alliance Dynamics and U.S.-China Competition. He also teaches at Princeton University. He co-directs the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and he co-hosts the Net Assessment Podcast. Okay, so I thought the best way, and I admit that um, I have been consumed with uh, the crisis in Ukraine. Um, I've been paying attention peripherally to everything that's happening in the Indo-Pacific, but Jude, maybe I can turn it over to you just to give us um, a little bit of the storyline in terms of what happened. I know obviously Nancy Pelosi's visit was like the kind of the trigger for all of this, but can you kind of walk us through the timeline um, as as you see it? Yeah, th- thanks a lot. It's great to be part of this conversation. I think, uh, um, actually, I think you just hit a key point right there, which is, the Pelosi visit was the proximate event, but I think, and I'm curious what Zach thinks, I think it could have been something that happened two weeks later, a month later. There were pressures building in the Taiwan Strait um, for a number of different reasons, but let's just simplify it. I think starting around 2016 or so, it's clear that this broad framework for managing tensions across the Taiwan Strait started to undergo some stress, I think from all different sides. Um, I think the United States has been growing weary of China's uh, growing capabilities, military capabilities that it can sort of project onto the Taiwan Strait, growing amount of coercion that China has been using against Taiwan economically, diplomatically. From Beijing's point of view, they were growing very nervous about what seemed to be this fast-shifting U.S. policy Uh, on Taiwan, more active, open support for Taiwan that Beijing at least was saying was in contravention to what China calls the one China principle, what we call our one China policy. But this broad idea that the United States is relatively neutral um, and is there as an umpire between Taiwan and and the mainland in solving their political differences in in non-military means, peaceful means. 
and and because of that, we have an unofficial relationship with Taiwan. Beijing was saying, "You guys are cheating. You're now all but in in, in name only. You, you've um, hollowed out your your one China uh, policy." I think over the last six or so months, but to especially since the invasion of Ukraine. The dynamic in the United States has uh, intensified insofar as our worry that, uh, as the Taiwans like to say, Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow, and that really Ukraine should be a wake-up call is what some were saying, and therefore we really got to start moving more aggressively and openly. Um, Beijing has been warning for months that the U.S. strategy of, quote, salami slicing and taking you know, additional marginal steps to throw support behind Taiwan was was really accelerating the hollowing out. So that's really the atmosphere into which this this congressional delegation uh, um, uh, occurred. Two final th- thoughts about the specifics of the congressional delegation, what really set this up for being the event that it was. Number one is congressional delegations are normal, but oftentimes what will happen is we mortals will not hear about it until the delegation has literally landed. That was the case for the delegation just this past weekend, which was led by Senator Ed Markey. I learned about it because it was on the news early in the morning that he had landed. The Pelosi trip was leaked a month plus prior to the actual visit, which is unusual. And for Beijing, what that meant is it's just kind of hanging out there for everyone to see, including domestic, you know, the domestic public in in China. And then the second thing is she was the Speaker of the House. Now, the United States was saying there's precedence for this. Newt Gingrich went in 1997. Um, but I think it was the fact that it was she was the Speaker of the House. It had been hanging out there for a month and building on top of this pile of grievances that Beijing had been leveling. Basically, Beijing saying, we've been, we've been screaming from the sidelines that we need you to stop salami slicing. You're not listening to us. So we're going to have to give you a bloody nose. The Pelosi trip, I think, was was for them the straw that broke the camel's back, and and hence uh, their reaction. Yeah, that's yeah, excellent context and a lot of key points that I you know the, the context is really helpful. So Zach Pelosi shows up, and can you kind of walk us through what we've seen in terms of China's response to her visit? Yeah, well, first again, great to be here with you and Jim. I, I think you know we've seen China go back to a lot of the tools that it uses to put pressure on Taiwan all the time, right? So um, certainly on the diplomatic side, uh, we're seeing more pressure, and um, the the diplomats from the foreign ministry have been really attacking the U.S. and Taiwan for for actions that they say undermine the status quo. I think they're going to do a little bit more of that in the next few months, maybe try and peel off one or two of Taiwan's allies abroad, right? These 14 countries that still recognize the Republic of China as the rightful government of China. Um, then there's uh, political warfare, which we're going to see a lot of, right? Um, putting more pressure on certain candidates within Taiwan. Uh, you know, they have now targeted a small group of officials in Taiwan and political leaders. And they say that there are going to be sanctions put on these groups and there are going to be uh, new lists of individuals released unless Taiwan changes its policies somehow. Uh, There have been economic sanctions put on a whole range of of goods from Taiwan. I don't think the effect of this has been tremendous at the moment, but but it's it's another piece. And then finally, there's the, the military aspect, which got a lot of attention. So 
Um, initially, there were seven live fire zones. Some of these zones are not just uh, the same kinds of zones that they used in the last crisis, the major crisis in 1995-96, but they actually are on the east side of Taiwan as well. Uh, and they're much closer to Taiwan. And in fact, a couple of them are right outside of major ports for Taiwan and effectively operated like uh, quasi-blockades. Um, and then we've seen Chinese ships and aircraft crossing what we call the median line, basically the halfway point between China and Taiwan. Uh, missiles shot over the island of Taiwan. So, you know, this is, in my mind, a, a pretty fulsome response from Beijing. What we did not see was China uh, engage in actions that really escalated in a serious way, right? And I think some of us had worried that there could be an incident, unintended or intended, uh, that could lead to, to really, you know, much more serious uh, kinetic crisis. Thankfully, we didn't see that, but we saw a lot of posturing uh, in all of these different areas that thankfully has not, at least at the moment, escalated. So I know Jim wants to jump in really quick, but really a quick follow-up. Is it, I mean, and we can talk about where it's going to go from here, but is it the case that we now have a new baseline kind of in terms of China's posture in the region? I mean, like that's one thing that we had seen over the years with Russia and Ukraine, right? Like with different deployments and things that there was just generally gradually a new status quo that was kind of introduced and then it normalizes and then it kind of continues to grow. Is, is it the case that you think that there has now been a new baseline that's set for what China's posture in, in and around Taiwan is? Is this like a new normal? I think it is. And, you know, I think this is very consistent with past Chinese behavior and other kinds of crises. You, you can see this on Taiwan, too. But, you know, the, the more recent cases, you can look at what Japan did around the Senkaku Diayu Islands, which are disputed with Japan uh, around 2012. Um, you know, that dispute resulted in a new normal, more ships and aircraft operating near those islands on a frequent basis. Uh, you can look at something like uh, Scarborough Shoal, which the Chinese sort of wrestled away from the Philippines, or the pressure we've seen economically on Australia or militarily on India. In many of these cases, China takes advantage of what it sees as a overstep by another, uh, another party and it, it basically says, okay, um, we're going to teach you a lesson. We're going to change the status quo in response. And so absolutely, I, I think we're in a different world. And I would say, uh, I still don't think um, we know exactly what the new normal is going to look like, right? Um, I think the next four to six months are, are going to be uh, pretty difficult ones. And, and we'll see the Chinese continue to press the boundaries a bit. I would just add that I think the this is very much the discussion going on in the administration right now is how much of this becomes the new normal and what does the United States do now to try to um, to try to constrain how much China is able to um, to uh, institutionalize, concretize this new normal. So I think you're seeing this discussion on the Taiwan side as well. Um, uh, I think they would like to make sure that that even though as a senior military official from Taiwan said the other day that the median line is all but destroyed as a concept, um, I think um, uh, this is a space that we should be watching really in the next days, weeks, months, because the fear is um, that if the United States takes a complete uh, light touch on this, then China will now, uh, as a matter of course, as Zach was just saying, have a really open playground 
um, to be training on um, and to be expanding the scope of intimidation um, on Taiwan. Well, thank you all very much. And uh, Andrea, thank you for letting me jump in. I know you're thinking about your next vacation, which is coming in a week. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> I, and so thank you for, for thinking of me. But, uh, but it, I think it might be helpful to some of our readers to talk a little bit about the U.S. domestic, not domestic, but the U.S. Uh, politics within the administration and the executive branch on this issue. In other words, a lot of people say, they ask me that, why did Pelosi even go? Why did she feel she had to go? And did Biden really tell her not to go? Did it just the U.S. military? Why? Why was? Why didn't Biden say something about it? And then you know, just back and forth on on just what was happening in terms of Pelosi and her office. Uh, why did she feel she had to go? Was it a farewell tour kind of thing? And uh, the Biden administration and what was happening behind the scenes as they were dealing with Pelosi and and the criticism coming down before she took the trip. So what was going on? Help us with the politics. Jude, you want to take it first? I, um, uh, the only reason I was deferring is because Zach was an active participant in this by writing a really great op-ed in the lead up to the trip, counseling that while a trip it's, in itself makes sense, maybe that there are um, uh, in contextual you know, factors which mean we should you know, think about a different timing. But you know, Jim, just very quickly... Um, this is one where the, the the Beijing embassy and and the PRC have been really pushing, you know, probing this to say, um, uh, you know, essentially that this was this trip was done for U.S. domestic politics uh, uh, reasons, and that the Biden administration could have but didn't intervene forcefully. Um, and you know, we then say, well, separation of powers, et cetera, et cetera. I think everyone's being slightly disingenuous. Um, um, I think you know Pelosi was wrapping up her tour as speaker. I don't think there was an intention to leak the trip. Um, she has long been a uh, an active, passionate um, 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 advocate on behalf of human rights issues in China. Back to Tiananmen Square, where she was in Tiananmen Square. There's footage of her on YouTube. You can see she has been a constant thorn in Beijing's side. I think post Ukraine, a lot of members of Congress have been thinking about the what's next um, and how do we get out early and ahead to make sure that we don't see a similar um, trampling of sovereignty occur to a democracy. Um, once the trip leaked, I then think it made the politics of this very difficult, even though I share Zach's you know, view that the trip itself in the aggregate was a net loss for really everybody, um, especially Taiwan. But I think once the trip was leaked, it did become more difficult. Number one, um, how much pressure does Biden put on Pelosi to try to um, to to hold off on the trip? That's very difficult for him politically, especially given that the administration is in a you know full throated let's compete against China um, to then um, to then be pulling back makes sense to people like you know mandarins like me and Zach. But I think for for the political discussion would have made the the administration look or perceive to to feel very very um, weak. There's also the challenge of Biden never told her not to go or asked her not to go. I think because of the other challenge of if she says no, um, you know, then then Biden essentially put himself out there and and gotten a, a slap down. Um, so. Um, uh, and think the other issue is the the worry that once the trip was put out there for for anyone on the U.S. side, w what signal does it send to Beijing, 
if because we're worried about angering Beijing, you know, we decide not to do the trip. Again, I come down on Zach's side of this, but I think in terms of the politics driving this, it was the leak that made this very, very difficult um, and really boxed in uh, option sets. Um, and then the final thing is Beijing in the weeks leading up to the trip was um, really hammering home the fact that she was um, the third, you know, second in line to the presidency because they wanted this at that point, once they knew the trip was going, they wanted to frame this as a dramatic escalation by the United States, right? A, a huge, huge uh, destabilizing move by the United States because they wanted to essentially frame their response as being natural and proportionate to the offense uh, by the United States. So, you know, this really became a circus in the days leading up to it, to the point where once people got the name of the, the flight tracking number, you know, everyone was on, it was, it was weird. Everyone was on flight tracker watching this little yellow plane icon sort of move, move around. Um, and, and I think that the, the entire sort of circus atmosphere, atmosphere of this um, really t took away from what was occurring, which I think Zach and many others saw, which is we were we were heading into unnecessarily a, a crisis that was likely not going to result in Taiwan being safer. And the fact that your previous question was just how much of this are they going to institutionalize as the new status quo is the predictable result, which Zach and others were were warning about. Yeah, I, you know, just a couple of quick thoughts out because I I think I agree with everything Jude said. Um, you know the the division between the White House and the Congress that we're seeing isn't a new one, right? In fact, Taiwan policy has has really been often a division between the White House and the Congress going back decades and decades. This is how you ended up with the Taiwan Relations Act. Essentially, the Congress rebuking the executive branch for, um, for uh, you know, what the Congress saw as basically choosing China over Taiwan. Uh, and so, uh, I think this is nothing new, number one. Number two, the, the disagreement is, is not just um, at the surface level. It really goes to a core strategic disagreement, which is that the Congress sees this status quo on Taiwan sort of beginning to fail, and they want to do everything possible to help Taiwan, right? Substantive actions like arms sales, symbolic actions like visits. They think this is all good. This all demonstrates U.S. support for Taiwan and all should help deter China. The White House view, you know, to the extent that there's one view, I think is more that actually these substantive actions are really important, but we don't need the symbolic ones. And so they see the Pelosi visit as, as largely symbolic. It, it doesn't really help defend Taiwan. And they therefore think, well, you know, what's the upside of doing this? And and obviously I, I come down a little bit more on, on the White House view about this, but I think what we've seen over the last few weeks is this may not be a politically sustainable viewpoint. Um, I think, and Jude may disagree with me on this, I, I think we're seeing that actually the White House has come out of this look looking quite weak, even though actually the White House is very hawkish on China issues. Um, and so I think there's some of us that are asking some tough questions, including of ourselves. You know, I, I thought the visit was a mistake. I said so beforehand. Um, I thought the timing could have been changed, et cetera, et cetera. But now after the visit, I, I think the White House needs to think pretty hard about whether they need to take some steps 
to basically regain the center and try and build some consensus around Taiwan policy, because I think it is fraying. I think this division between the White House and the Congress is really dangerous. I think we're going to see partisan divisions emerge as well. Um, and I, I, you know, we can talk about what some of those steps might be, but I, I think we're in a really, really difficult period over the next 18 months as a result. Do you very helpful. That? Thank you. That's, it's really, really helpful. I mean, there's there's been this also a lot of debate about the White House's position on kind of strategic ambiguity and whether or not they've shifted. I, I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about that. Is it is it has there been an intentional shift? Does there need to be an intentional shift? Or are these changes that people picking up on really just a result of, like you're saying, these divisions and lack of consensus about what the policy should be? I, I don't know. Maybe, like, Talk us through like what you think has changed or haven't changed. Yeah, well, you know, strategic ambiguity um, has a long history. And the basic logic of it was that um, if you go back and you actually look at the arrangements we made with the Chinese in the 1970s, we never really came to any agreement about what to do on Taiwan, right? The Chinese will try and argue that we agreed on some one China principle. We, we did not. We acknowledged the Chinese position. You know, they listened to our positions and, and we really didn't come to an, any agreement. The hope was that there would be some sort of peaceful resolution. And we have to be clear, the reason there's not going to be a peaceful resolution in part is because the Chinese Communist Party has convinced everyone on Taiwan that the one thing they all know that they don't want is to be part of the Chinese Communist Party, right? They've watched what's happened in Hong Kong. Um, this supposed one party, two systems approach has just fallen apart. And, and the end result is that Hong Kong is basically just like the mainland, um, which was not the deal that was made during the handover in 97. And so people on Taiwan watch that and they say, we, we want no part of this, right? And so this fig leaf that we had of the hope that there was going to be some peaceful unification between Taiwan and China that would avoid us having to have the difficult conversations that we're having to have now is going away. And that's largely Beijing's fault. Um, but the, the end result, in my view, is that the logic of strategic ambiguity has become harder to explain to a lot of Americans because part of the logic was sort of threefold, right? A little bit of deterrence to, to China, a threat that we might get involved if we had to, without crossing the line to say that we absolutely would defend it because some people think that, hey, that's why we tossed away the US Republic of China, Taiwan uh, Mutual Defense Treaty, right, um, was that we said we weren't going to defend Taiwan in all circumstances. So, so you can't go all the way back there is what some people have argued. And the third part, and this is what people forget, was also we were trying to restrain Taipei from doing things that would alter the status quo in dangerous ways, in our view. Now, that's much, of a, much less of a serious issue than it was in the 1970s, but we still are going to have elections coming up in Taiwan where there are going to be people in Taipei who may be pressing for, for something closer to formal independence. So the White House view, I think, has been a reasonable one, which is to say, look, strategic ambiguity is good. The reason is it gives us leverage with Taiwan. It can still be an effective deterrent with China. Um, so we shouldn't get away from it. The problem, of course, is that I think for most of the American people, they're saying, well, you're trying to send a strong deterrent message, but you're doing it with ambiguity. That, that just doesn't make sense. Why not be clear? And, and oh, by the way, the fact that the president can't seem to get the policy right doesn't help. So, you know, I, I think we're heading towards a world where I, 
I'm not a fan of strategic clarity, um, which is, you know, the the sort of opposite in some ways of strategic ambiguity. But I think there may be a, a half step that we're going to have to talk about, which is the administration could say, look, we're not going to support Taiwan's formal independence. Um, and if if there's a military conflict as a result of that, the U.S. may not or would not intervene on Taiwan's behalf. But um, facing increasing pressure from China, we we would intervene if China unprompted attacked Taiwan. Right now, I I don't get me wrong. You would have a very severe response from Beijing for that. I think you would have to convince Chinese leaders that this isn't a salami slicing effort. This is the end of the road. This is the maximal commitment that Taiwan is going to get. You'd have to convince leaders in Taipei that they still need to be restrained. Um, but I think the White House is going to have to think about something like this to sort of regain the consensus and the momentum, because otherwise it's all being pushed from elsewhere. And I think they're looking weaker and weaker and kind of getting backed into a corner. Um I, you know, largely agree with what Zach said. Um, I guess where I would just add is I think this discussion on strategic ambiguity and strategic clarity is utterly beside the point. <laughs> I think it is totally, totally irrelevant. Um, we in the Taiwan Relations Act have sufficient clarity about our position. Number one, in the TRA, we say the entire diplomatic relationship between the United States and China is premised on the idea that the Taiwan issue will be resolved peacefully. Number two, we say in the TRA that if China uses non uses military means to, to attack uh, Taiwan, we will uh, consider that a grave threat to our security and interests in the Western Pacific. And the whole point of our, our provision of defense of, of military equipment of defensive nature to Taiwan is because precisely we say um, this is the this is the bargain that we have struck with China is this has to be a peaceful uh, peaceful resolution. Additionally, there's no strategic thinker in China who does not doubt that if China unprovoked attacked Taiwan, that the United States would intervene in the in in the uh, conflict. So. I think part of the problem is a branding issue. This idea of anything called ambiguity in the United States is going to lose to anything called clarity. But but I think it's just beside the point. As it stands now, stated intentions, the United States is, I think we're very, very clear. But here's why I think this is a distraction, is it's not what we say. And frankly, if we had statements up the wazoo from the Biden administration saying we will intervene, it is going to be credibility of the United States. And this is where we don't need to change one iota of the TRA or strategic ambiguity, or, or let me put it another way, changing suddenly to strategic clarity without fundamental changes to the credibility of our approach would do nothing. If anything, it would put us in a more dangerous position because China would say, oh, you're clear, are you? And they'd start poking and prodding to call our bluff. And I, my fear is we're way out ahead of our skis in terms of our rhetoric that is not matched on the credible sort of commitment we would have to intervene. So what I would say is, let's stop any talk about clarity or, or ambiguity. Um, even saying strategic clarity is a misnomer because um, it, of course we can't say a priori we would intervene in any and all circumstances, no matter what happened and, and who provoked it, right? So even the idea of clarity is a misnomer. I think instead what we need to be focusing on is, what are sustainable measures the United States can take, and sustainable being the optimal word here, 
to increase Taiwan's aggregate security, prosperity, and resiliency as a democracy in ways that don't overly provoke China. Our goal is not to not piss off China, because then we will do nothing. Our job is to make sure that we are sustainably doing, taking actions that keep China in a position where it thinks the Taiwan issue is a long-term challenge. What we're doing now with this very herky-jerky all over the place, you know, um, even within the White House, you hear different messages. And of course you add Congress, it's a stew of contradictions. We are unnecessarily making Be Beijing more anxious and nervous. And I fear we're in this position right now because we've we've lost our Cold War muscle, where we almost feel like we don't need to, that paying attention to what our adversary thinks is somehow kowtowing to it. Quite the opposite, you know, as we learned in the in the Cold War, you know, if you're gonna ultimately prevail, you have to have a laser-like understanding of the sensitivities of, you know, signaling of your, of your you know, opponent. And here, you know, I think we've just given up caring about what is the difference between deterrence and escalation. Um, when, when should we be taking aggressive steps that materially help Taiwan? When, in the case of Zach's great op-ed with Bonnie Glazer, when do you pull back? Not because you're weak, but because you realize this is the, the juice is not worth the squeeze on this. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, I think the broader question here where I totally agree with Zach is the ground underneath our kind of our staid um, framing of our one China policy is shifting rapidly. And if we're just in a position where we just say our policy has not changed, it is the three communiques, the six reassurances and the TRA, and we just keep saying that rote, we will, as Zach was saying, the reality will, will, will shape our Taiwan policy for us. So I completely agree. I think we got through two weeks ago, but we're not out of the crisis. And now is the moment to think the, the framing of, of one China policy survived because China was relatively weak. That is no longer the case. So we need to think about what is a what is a new sustainable approach that helps Taiwan and keeps peace. And it won't just be from pretending like, you know, we're we're stuck in 1993. Yeah. Okay. This is so this is so helpful and interesting. And I want to get back to this idea of sustainable steps because right, we're in the middle of supporting Ukraine in another major crisis. So, like that idea of sustainability, I want to talk about. But one of the most uh, I don't know, immediate questions that I have had in all of this is the extent to which this is an enduring uh, approach from Beijing. And I guess what I mean is the, the, the party Congress is coming. And so how much of Beijing's very strong response to the Pelosi visit was um, pushed by Xi's desire to look strong uh, ahead of that really critical moment for him? Um, and how much of this is here to stay? I think it's the latter. I mean, I, I the party Congress is thrown around as this sort of like, it, we think it's this skeleton key for understanding everything. Take away the party Congress, we'd be where we are this year. It is it is the fact that Beijing was feeling like, um, and again, I'm not I'm not normatively empathizing with Beijing. I'm just analytically describing it. They felt like they're losing Taiwan in a very visible way at a at a rapidly escalating pace and that they needed to draw a line under this and start setting a price for U.S. salami slicing. Um, so I think this was going to come irrespective. I, I think like Russia, right? Like the worry that you're losing it and you need to act now while you can and you have the capability before it's too late. I mean, there, there are a lot I, of parallels. I'm always struck by the parallels between these yeah. two. 
you know, and it's interesting because I think what what is unhelpful to the situation is both the U.S. and China feel like time is not on their side. Um, both, I think, feel a, a level of anxiousness, and 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 tragically, both are probably wrong. You know, in the United States, it's this feeling like Xi Jinping has circled a date on his calendar. You know, eighteen months from now or five years from now, and he's going to turn the page and go. You know, all right, time to go in. And on the Chinese side, I think it's an inability to understand what's driving the cycle of U.S. actions, which is we'd prefer not to be risking our neck over this. But our feeling is Beijing is not content with the status quo, so is kind of trying to force a resolution of this through intimidation, coercion, and now this fearsome flexing of military muscle. Beijing thinks what it's doing by flexing that muscle is just deterring. It's basically saying, don't think about it. But we're reading that as an escalation and a prelude to war. Um, you know, just quickly on the on the Beijing point, though, I think another, you know, I think what's become clear as well is Beijing has no functioning strategy. Um, as Zach mentioned, they keep referencing one country, two systems. But it's like, you know, it's like journey touring nowadays and just, you know, playing, you know, don't stop believing and trying to convince you it's a new hit. It's all they've got. And so one country, two systems as, a, as an acceptable, credible, credible path to unification was dead in Taiwan a long ago, but but long ago, but Hong Kong and the experience drove a stake into it. But at the outer end, an overt military invasion is existentially risky for China. And so they're left in this wasteland of not having a creative third approach. And that's why you just see more cowbell. Um, you, you're just gonna <laughs> see them, I think, in this very, very reactive, you know, we do a CODEL, they do more exercises. Um, and I think that's actually one of the most worrying aspects for me is because Beijing does not even have a, a, a credible internal strategy, they're going to be incredibly sensitive and incredibly reactive. And so if, I think this is where Taiwan is in a real pickle because what it needs from the United States is a calm, patient, steady level of low-key support that we just drip, drip, drip in, in a just a real calm manner. And from Beijing, what they need is Beijing to be thinking, we can pretend we've got a long-term solution to this and everyone you know, goes along with that pretend. Both those things are evaporating. And I think that's, that's this acute sense of anxiety that even us analysts looking at this are, are feeling. So Zach, does she have to take Taiwan? I mean, does he have to? I mean, so you think about Putin, right? So he didn't want to be the leader to lose Ukraine. He's thinking about his legacy, returning historical lands. I mean, are, are any, do those parallels resonate with Xi? I mean, you again, like the strong, increasingly personalist leader who I, you know, coming into this historic great party Congress, I, I you know, he, I'm sure likens himself to Mao Zedong and other great Chinese leaders. I imagine he will be thinking about his legacy. Is this one of these things he's going to feel like he has to do at some point because of, of the way that, that he, of, of his own mentality? Yeah. So first I should say, I have no idea. I have no idea what she's doing. But the, these but, are the questions you have to, if, if you do yeah. Russia or you do China, you have to get that's in right. the head. Yeah. Yeah. But but what I think, so what I, so I don't feel confident about what she thinks, but I do feel confident that um, what we should be trying to do is make sure that she feels that the risk level of doing this is just not worth it. Right. And let's be honest, you know, if, if Xi Jinping made a play, like if he attempted an invasion of Taiwan, and that invasion just flat out failed, 
you know, Xi Jinping is probably gone in the not so distant future as a result. And, and you know, losing out in a dictatorship um, is, is probably not like you're retiring to the countryside, right? It, it could be death. It could mean your whole family, yes. right, is tossed out. Um, so, so I think the risks are very high for Xi. And so I would think that the level of confidence he would have to have to sort of opportunistically try and seize Taiwan would, would be extremely high. So I think part of our job is to make sure that he can't be that confident, number one. Um, now, there's a big debate among the expert community about whether there's some deadline that she has to make progress by, right? 2027 or 2035. I mean, I guess my personal view on this is I, I'm not a big believer in those deadlines. I, I think, um, you know, if political leaders set deadlines for themselves and then things look like they're not going their way, they can reset the deadlines, right? Um, so what I worry about is what Jude said, which is, you know, if we talk a lot and don't do much to actually build the deterrent capabilities, then I think maybe she will will figure, hey, it's worth running this risk. Or if if he feels like things are so decidedly moving against China in terms of you know Taiwan politically shifting away from China and the U.S. being much more outrightly supportive, and that um, maybe the military balance is actually stabilizing for the U.S. and Taiwan, right? Like we can bring on new capabilities if we wanted to. Um, then maybe he feels that he has to move relatively quickly, as Jude was saying. You get this window of opportunity argument, but but I guess I I keep coming back to the fact that I. I think if we do the right things, we can probably convince him that the risk of doing this is very severe. Now, um, are we going to do those things? I don't know, right? We've been talking about this for 10 or 20 years, and actually we haven't done most of the things that I think a lot of us have suggested on the military side. Um, and so, you know, the, this is sort of along the lines of what Jude was saying that, you know, I think our policy should be to walk softly and carry a big stick. Um, we haven't been walking softly recently and we're definitely not carrying a big stick. So um, we've got to basically reverse both of those elements, I think, if we're going to convince Xi Jinping that this isn't that this isn't worth it. Just, yeah. just one, sure. one quick thing I was going to say is the 1995-96 Taiwan Straits crisis and this last one were not provoked by the United States providing military assistance, diplomatic assistance. It was because of two sort of high-level, very visible political events. Lee Dunghui visiting the United States and Nancy Pelosi's trip. That tells us something, that we have lots of space to be materially supporting Taiwan and building partnerships around the region of folks who take a, a, a acute interest in peace and security in the Taiwan Strait. It also means, on the negative side, we should just be aware that there are certain things we could do that are gratuitous. You know, I think renaming the de facto Taiwan embassy here, changing the T from, you know, from Taipei to Taiwan doesn't do anything for Taiwan. But it does. It is one of those sort of visible poke Beijing in the eye um, that I think we just want to, to to think about. So that's part of, the, I think, the, the talking softly part. Just to put a finer point on what Jude's saying, just for listeners that don't follow this stuff. So there's something called the Taiwan Policy Act, which is um, about to be debated in the Congress. Um, it has four or five provisions 
that do exactly things like what Jude was saying or, or naming Taiwan a major non-NATO ally. These are things that, um, that are going to be very hotly debated the next few weeks and months, and they will be very closely watched both in Taipei and in Beijing. Um, so I'm not suggesting that this is going to create a crisis, but I think the way this comes out will do um, will will have a big say in how the Chinese read the U.S. debate, um, and you know I'll put my you know my voice behind the folks who think as as Jude was suggesting that there's a lot of really important substantive stuff that the Taiwan Policy Act would do to militarily help Taiwan. Frankly, a lot of the stuff that we've sort of been doing in Ukraine, stockpiles, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but then there is a lot of highly symbolic um, material in it that I, I wish would be stripped out because I actually am not sure that it puts Taiwan in a better spot. Well, Jim, you're being quiet in on in your vacation house. You're giving me a hard time for my vacation. So I'm going to keep asking questions and maybe we can spend the last like couple of minutes maybe bringing it back to the transatlantic community. Um, one thing that I think is worth maybe just us pausing on is kind of what this does in terms of like decision-making in, in the White House um, for attention and ability to continue to sustain support for Ukraine. I mean, is this the moment where now all the China hawks in the U.S. administration who are probably like ripping their hair out because we've been spending the last, you know, over six months so focused on Russia and not on China, which is what the Biden administration wanted to do originally when they came into the administration, are they using this as the like, see, I told you so moment, and now please let's get back to the business of taking care of China, which is after all our more significant longer term threat. Like, I don't, I mean, to the extent that you can tell what this is doing to debates and discussion in the White House, do you expect that there's now going to be more pull from the China side in a way that? will make it harder to sustain? I mean, I, and I know you can't, won't have a direct answer, but just at least to talk a little bit about what you think this is doing, is it emboldening the, the China communities inside the national security apparatus? Not emboldening, that's not the right word, but you, but you know what I mean. I, I do who, think- Who's winning and who's losing in, in, yeah. in a sense? Look, I, I think actually the, the Biden team has been pretty nuanced on this in the sense that, I, my friends on the Asia side, they they thought Ukraine was really important. They still think Ukraine is really important because at the end of the day, they believe that part of what we're fighting for is to make sure that we sustain an order, right? And it's not just an order in Asia, it's it's a global order. And so I, I think they fully understood that Ukraine needed to be a priority, right? And look, there are some people in both parties who are sort of as you know better than I do, suggesting, oh, let's throw the Europeans overboard and just focus 100% on Asia. I mean, I, I've i never heard anyone inside the White House suggest that that's how they thought, and certainly not not how I think of it. I, I think the two are interrelated in important ways, and, and you guys have written about this. Um, but I do think now there's a recognition that, um, look, the next, let's say, year, two years, I think we're going to see more crises like this with Taiwan. This is not over, right? Um, we're going to have leaders in the Congress, Republicans, probably go to Taiwan early next year. We're going to have the Taiwan Policy Act. 
we're going to have China be an election issue heading into 2024. We're going to have an election in Taiwan in 2024. These are all triggers for things. And, and there will be incidents that we can't think of that, that will arise over that next you know, 18 or 24 months too. So I what I hear most from, from the White House and the Pentagon is a fear that first, we've got to act now. This is this is like you know the months or years before the the February invasion. You need to get stuff in Taiwan now. We don't have time to wait. Um, and number two, that that this isn't this isn't over, right? This is sort of the beginning of a process that is going to be much more tense and escalatory, and we've got to be preparing for that today. I'd just add that, um, and you said this in your intro, Andrea. Um, forget about fighting two wars concurrently. Can we manage two crises concurrently? And I think now is a time to, um, I, th- I think because if you're like Zachariah, you, you don't feel like this necessarily has to be a short-term issue. We can make it that. Um, and, and in fact, a very simple conception, which is China's going to inevitably invade. Therefore, let's do everything possible right now to, to deter that invasion will likely bring us to the point where China will feel like it has to invade. So um, I think, um, I, I agree with Zach. I think my read of folks in the administration is many of them think that actually the ultimate deterrence to China is going to be perseverance in Ukraine and keeping coalitions alive that can uh, sustain and show stamina. That if China essentially sees evaporation or, or the U.S. play kitty soccer, that it will make a determination on what the stamina of the United States will be in, in other domains. But I think more critically, um, we, I hate quoting Sun Tzu. It's what every hack, you know, DOD, P, P, you know, PPT does. But we want to win without fighting. Um, we want to find a way to essentially outcompete and outmaneuver China in and on the issue of Taiwan. And luckily for us, Beijing does not want this conflict to come to a head anytime soon. Um, and I think we hold the stronger cards if we want to play them. And we're also in the moral right, because there is ultimately one bad actor here. It's the one who wants to impinge upon the sovereignty of a resilient democracy, and that's that's the PRC. So I think we're we're in a great position to manage this conflict as a shoot, that sounds really perverse to say it that way, but we're in a good position to manage this as a longer term issue if we want to take it that seriously and prioritize this and and look at this at the right lens. And final thought is I really think there's only a small minority of the um, it's all about China and so screw the rest of the world people. The voices are there. Um, and I think they may probably at the margin have gotten a little bit of a, a an empirical boost from events a few weeks ago. But I think I think majority of the sort of folks working this problem set understand that this is a fungible experience and that you don't you you can't cut off credibility in one area of the world and expect that it it completely moves over to the other and the other thing too is you can't say to your european allies and friends see you guys you take care of this but we're going to need you in a few years to fight the galactic battle against china it just doesn't it doesn't work that way well, thank you. I I um I was struck earlier on, and I think uh, Andre was too about some of the parallels, not just uh, Taiwan, China, Ukraine, Russia, but uh, how the allies and how we in the West have dealt with Putin, or our perceptions of Putin, or uh, how good a job it was that we were listening to Putin over time. I think I think um, Jude, it was I think you had talked about. Uh, 
how well or not we were listening to she, you know, or understood she or uh, uh, took seriously what he was saying. I think there's parallels there, too, in terms of how we dealt with Putin in the past. And I know you all are Asia watchers and not uh, Europe watchers, but but the, maybe you, you do look our way every now and then. Uh, and uh, have you been struck by that kind of parallel, too, of how good a job we did in terms of listening to uh, leaders who, who are now our adversaries? Yeah, you know, Jim, I think this is such an interesting issue. I um, I think actually the China community has really benefited from watching what's happened the last, let's say, year with Ukraine, um, in part because the U.S. intelligence community got it right. They really got it right. And they got it right early, right? You know, we've had these reports going back to October, November about you know, the, the U.S. intelligence community basically figuring out exactly what was going to happen. Or we got um, right half of the equation, the fact of the invasion, but not yes. necessarily the capabilities, which is a whole, I mean, we could, this conversation could go on for hours. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, 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 you know, I, I, I can't tell you um, how many foreign governments in Asia have said, boy, like we, you know, we really didn't make that same assessment. The U.S. seemed to really know some stuff here. Um, I think it has changed their view about how accurate our assessments are of, of some of the potential decisions of, of China and of Xi Jinping in, in particular. Um, it's not to say that they're always going to believe us when, when we make these assessments. The, the part, though, that I find more troubling is the discussion in the expert community, where, like, I, I feel this, Jude, Jude was saying this comment that... Um, you, you have to listen to your adversary, not because you agree with them, but because you need to know what they are thinking so that you know how they're going to act. And I, I have been very surprised the last few weeks at how much experts who are trying to say, look, we think this is how the Chinese will view this. We're not defending the Chinese view. We think it's crazy. But but like you should understand how they are likely to view this and therefore how they're likely to respond. I see this in the Russia community all the time, right? Yeah. Yes. Not that not that people who understand Russia well are trying to defend Putin. In fact, you know, they they for the most part hate the decisions he's been making, but they're just saying, look, you, you need to understand what might be going through his head so you can understand how he's going to respond. And I mean, I found this parallel just personally the last few weeks shockingly difficult where people are, you know, I, I can't tell you how many notes I've gotten from some people I like saying, oh, you're you're spewing Chinese propaganda because you're saying exactly what Xi Jinping wants you to say. And I'm saying, no, I like, we just need to understand what the Chinese think. And I, I see this parallel with, with how people have been watching Putin's comments. For sure. I I just want to quadruple down on that because um, I find it one of the most depressing, worrying components of this. On the one hand, people telling me that this is a, I mean, this is a, a, a galactic struggle for, you know, the safety of the galaxy and and that the PLA is the world's you know the the galaxy's most fearsome fighting force. But then I get this view of like, but we can do whatever we want, and we don't really care what they what they say because you know we're the United States. And you know, I, I, Zach's one hundred percent right. I, um, the the commentary and the notes that I've gotten over the past few weeks for what are me are just fairly standard analytical comments of. I think Beijing will view statement X with action Y, not putting a normative stamp of approval is being perceived as, you know, again, sort of 
you know, carrying water for Beijing. And, and sadly, the alternative for that is um, uh, structurally deciding we're going to misunderstand Chinese intentions and signals. And I feel like the whole thing of, well, we need to get to, you know, we need to find a way to skip past the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. It starts now. And it starts with essentially having your analytical lens be purely objective. And then your proscriptive one, you know, that's up to you, you know. Um, but I think we need to separate those very clearly. And um, we are, you know, the just even the, the, the outbriefing from Pelosi's visit, still I have people who decide that they don't want to read some Beijing actions as Beijing's attempt at deterrence. Right. And are just deciding that they, you know, that it's all a prelude to an invasion. Again, I think Beijing's got a really wacky theory of deterrence. I think Beijing completely misreads how their actions are being viewed here. Um, but my argument has been if we don't have a laser like understanding of where Beijing thinks it's deter is it is deterring, we will not understand when they are genuinely trying to escalate. Right. right. Um, so even just on a sort of how do we play our 5D chess to outcompete and win in this conflict? It has to start with, you know, imagine George Kennan wrote the long telegram and said, like, you know what? I don't really know much about the Soviet Union and I don't think I need to. But here's 5000 words on what our strategy should be. <laughs> that's where we're at. Yeah, that's that's think tank land. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, a lot of parallels with the Russian community. Maybe final question and. Um, just to, again for the for transatlantic listeners, at, have you noted any changes in the way that Beijing is thinking about its relations with Europe? I mean, certainly in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, there's been some changes on the Europe side um, in terms of kind of recognizing the dangers of uh, revisionist authoritarian actors. That they've continued to, in many cases, um, some views on China are hardening. Um, is that registering in Beijing? Um, and as U.S.-China relations heat up, I mean, I know I understand that one of China's key goals is to try to keep Europe on the fence, right, so that they're not all in with the United States. And do you imagine, do, can you anticipate or would you expect that China will adjust its approach to Europe or kind of, I don't know, a broad way of like, what do you expect kind of given this change that's taking place in the Indo-Pacific? Do you think that's going to have consequences for the way that China looks at Europe? Uh, quickly, um, uh, what's so shocking and and is Beijing's complete uh, lack of peripheral vision. Um, they have been, Europe has been a blind spot since the 24th of February. Um, when even in their, you know, they thought they were walking this really careful, you know, balanced line and they just were not hearing, you know, the April 1st summit between the EU and China was a, just, I think one of the first moments where they got a little bit of taste of reality. Um, but I think, you know, um, if you look at the analytical community in China, which, you know, Zach and I do a lot of these track twos, you'll see some pretty sophisticated analysis of what's going on, but they will say they're frustrated that that the senior leaders are, you know, living in their own world right now. Um, and so I think this is a, you know, on the Chinese side of it, what really worries me is um, I, I don't feel comfortable that Beijing has the, the same spring in its step to be able to be adjusting and pivoting. And I think what we're going to see coming out of the Pelosi visit, um, but also the war in Ukraine has, has confirmed all their priors about the way the world works. 
which is there's a block of Cold War countries run by the West who are hell-bent on containing China. We've, we've done all we can to try to appease them. So now is the time to you know, gird our loins, dig in our heels, bulk up, militarize up, uh, build new build new quasi alliances and alignments. And, you know, Andre, you've written um, some just amazing stuff on the enduring nature of the Chinese-Russian, you know, strategic alignment. So I think everything that's happening right now is confirming Beijing's worst priors about the way that the international order is structured and the way that the United States, you know, is hell-bent on containment. And so uh, I think they're we could channel some of that to our advantage because it means they're going to be poisoning relationships with some countries. On the other hand, I think we've seen that where where we think there should be slam dunk, you know, um, slam dunk sort of come to Jesus moments like with India, you know, the world's much more complicated. And so I think for us, we also shouldn't come to our own sense of sort of digging in our heels and, and just imagine that the world woke up on the 25th or 24th of February and saw clear demarcations between light, you know, and evil, and everyone's going to come to our side. We're going to have to grind this out, even as China starts to score more own goals. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say this is one area, look, I've been wrong about very many things. And this is one area I was really wrong about. I've always been a little skeptical of these arguments about Russia and China getting together. And Andrea, you've made a lot of them. So I, you know, um, I, I was wrong on this. I, I've always thought, well, look, th this is kind of a terrible idea for the Chinese, right? Um, like Russia is a, a relatively small player compared to Europe. Why would you double down on Russia when when you're making progress with the Europeans? And, and, and look, I, I think like, as Jude was saying, um, there are a lot of smart people in China who think that way. They just don't have any influence right now. Um, and so I, I sort of think that we'll we'll now see China and Russia continue to be quite close. You know, there are things that China could do to help Russia that it is not doing, right? You know, Chinese companies are largely abiding by the sanctions. We haven't seen the arms sales that the White House was so worried about or the provisions from, from China to Russia. Uh, but I think that relationship is very close. What, what really worries me is, is two things. First, um, what does this look like as we head into the winter? And, and you guys have talked a lot about this on the podcast. You know, can the Europeans stay united on Ukraine? Or is the prospect of energy constraints and recession going to drive, especially some of the Western Europeans, to try and push for for a more relaxed policy on, on Russia? Um, and how would the Chinese view that, right? It, do, if they think there are divisions emerging in the transatlantic relationship, can the Chinese use that somehow to their advantage? The second thing is, even if we are able to keep the transatlantic alliance together, um, can China then turn towards the global south and really make a lot of progress with a lot of countries that frankly just don't think this Ukraine fight has anything to do with them, right? Latin America, Africa, some parts of Southeast Asia, um, where, where this just seems like a real sideshow for a lot of them. Um, and so I worry a lot both about, you know, can we keep, for lack of a better term, the West together? But even if we do keep the West together, how do we actually compete in the global South? And I, I, I I think the next few months are going to be really difficult on both of those counts. Yeah. Yeah. All really good points. Wow. This was, I mean, I really, we could have gone on for hours, but we'll cut it there in the interest of time. Um, 
it, there's just so much going on. And I think it's just so important for like transatlantic listeners just to, I mean, you've given so much insight into how the administration is thinking about this issue and where US-China relations are, are likely to go from here. And so I think that's just invaluable um, for listeners. And I really appreciate you doing that um, here in the dog days of summer. Um, but hopefully we'll, I think, you know, love to have you all back um, and check in in a couple months time and see where we are. Because this issue, again, like so many of those that we're following, isn't going anywhere for the foreseeable future. So thank you both. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.